You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, it is great to see you all here. Hold on, we're taking a picture real quick. Very good. All right. Um, so if you wonder, like, wow, you get those action shots. How do you do it? That's how we do it. Just like that. We try to make it a little more natural, but it takes me a little more effort to be photogenic. So anyway, and I know you're shocked by that. You're like, really? You look fantastic from where I'm sitting. I know. I know. It's weird. Anyway. All right. So as I transition from that, um, so let me ask this question as we get started, and that is, does anybody here, and maybe you won't kind of understand it at first, but I think you will later, do you have different rules when you're on vacation than you do when you're at home? Anybody? All right, most of you, and then the rest of you, you don't really understand what I'm saying. Um, so let me explain it. And that is, when you're on vacation, you sleep later than you normally do, you stay up later than you normally do. You eat way more junk food than you normally do. And I know some of you are thinking like, no, Pastor Rob, those are my regular rules. And uh, well, so <clears throat> my son uh, turned 11 a few months ago. But when he turned 10, this was like a big deal at our house, turning 10. And so we decided that we were going to do something epic for him on his birthday. So we got him tickets to see uh, this group called Dude Perfect. They're a YouTube channel. All right, very good. All right, cool. Some fans. All right, excellent. I'll let them know. Uh, they have four fans here. Uh, actually, they have like 50 some, 54 million subscribers. Uh, but anyway, they, if you're not aware of who they are, they do like trick shots and sports and comedy and all that. They're all Christians. And um, so not only were we going to fly to Atlanta, that was the closest that they were going to be to us was Atlanta. So we got tickets for uh, Xander and I to go to this show. We got tickets, uh, like airline tickets, and then I also got him a meet and greet uh, to meet all five guys. So the morning that we left, I made this decision as we left for the airport, and that is that I just wanted this to be the most epic weekend ever for him, and so I was going to refuse no reasonable request. I mean, unless it was like, Dad, can I just drive the rental car for a little while? Unless it was that... I was going to say yes to everything. And so we get to the airport and, uh, you know, they, he said, you know, dad, can I get a snack before the flight? Of course you can. And then we get on the plane and he says, dad, when we get to Atlanta, can we go to that restaurant that we went last year when we were in Atlanta? I'm like, of course we can. And then, um, uh, by the way, when we got the rent, we got there, the rental car he was like, hey, can we drive that car? It was the same. We had like a choice of three, all the different, same car, just different colors. You want to pick that one? We'll drive that one. And so, uh, you know, typically my kids are only allowed to drink soda on the weekends. But when it's your 10th birthday, you drink as much soda as you want. And uh, so we, you know, my son wanted Mexican food every meal. So you know what we did? We ate Mexican food every meal. We had ice cream at 10 p.m. We watched Dude Perfect videos on the ho in the hotel room while eating popcorn and Oreos. And then we get to the Dude Perfect show, and because he has this meet and greet, we have to get there uh, about three hours before. And then 
there's this area where they have like all their merch and he's like, dad, I have enough for a shirt, but not a hoodie. I'm not sure which to get. And I'm like, you know what, buddy? Happy birthday. I got him both of them. And, and then he got to meet the guys. And here's a picture of my son meeting the guys, uh, which he was just, he was literally losing his mind. He was so excited. And, um, you know, he hugged all of them and he was just so excited. And anyway, it was great. And so anyway, and then this is him at the show. And when I got him the hoodie, and so he is so excited because we're right there. And then it was just the perfect, everything that could go right went right. And so uh, they, they were throwing out shirts. And once again, mostly because I have, and you may not realize this, but I have the reflexes of a cheetah. And so I just leapt uh, like I was in the Serengeti going after my prey. And I just grabbed one of the shirts that were flying. Anyway, I caught a shirt for him. And then uh, I, I, the next morning, I'm checking Instagram. And Dude Perfect posts a picture from the show. And I see this right here. So when he wakes up in the morning, uh, I say, dude, you're not going to believe this. But this is a picture. So we're flipping through because they post a bunch of pictures. And I'm like, who does that look like? And he's, he's like, wow, he's losing his mind. I'm like, dude, I'm like, Zan, I can assure you, no one's focused on any of this. Everyone is like, who is that little kid? This kid looks awesome. Anyway, and I'm like, millions of people wondering who you are. How can we get in touch with him? You know, anyway, so we're leaving the show though on Sunday night and, uh, and it was just amazing. And he's just... He's had like the best day and he's like, dad, uh, he hugs me and he's like, dad, today was the best day of my life. Thank you so much. And I, I just, I start crying. I'm like an idiot in the middle of an arena with 10,000 people. And I'm like, me too, buddy. Me too. You know, I was like acting like a, like a, like a, seriously, like I've totally lost uh, my bearings here. Well, anyway, so we fly home and the next morning Xander wakes up and we're usually the first two awake. So I'm sitting at the dining room table, taking care of some work. He just, he stumbles in, you know, like, oh man, opens up. We have this, like this little fridge in our kitchen. He opens up the little fridge. He grabs a root beer. He's about to pop it open. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm thirsty. And I'm like, it's nine o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and he's like, what, what, what do you mean? And I'm like, you can't ever, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, you don't realize the vacation rules are over. It's now like normal life rules because if you live vacation rules forever, you end up broke, unemployed, and with type 2 diabetes. And so now here's the point. This is the reason I'm telling you this. Rules change. Sometimes rules apply. There are some rules that apply on vacation that don't apply during normal times. And that is true even within a family coming from the same parents that sometimes the circumstance requires things to change. Now, this is so important for us when it comes to the Bible because people who are usually critical of the Bible will pull some random verse out of the Old Testament. Then they'll pull some principle out of the New Testament and say, look, these things are totally incongruent. I don't understand how you can believe that book and it can't be trusted. And I just want to tell you that, and this is one of the things that's so powerful, is that that is such a binary way to look at the Bible. And if we, as individuals, are way more nuanced than that, then certainly the Bible is way more nuanced as well. Now, I tell you this because we've been studying the book of Hebrews 
which as if you've been with us for, I think this is our ninth message in the, in the book, is that, and I've been saying this every week, that Hebrews is the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It's written to a group of uh, Jewish Christians going through a difficult time, asking the question, if God loves me, why is life so hard? And the answer to that question is this very eloquent and theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement to do the one thing that's going to help when you're going through a season of difficulty, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And throughout this book, the writer has been telling his readers that Jesus is better than anything else that we would want to put our trust in. Now, let me tell you what tends to happen, is that we will look at, we'll say, yeah, Jesus is better. And what we think in our minds is, yeah, Jesus is better than all the bad and sinful and evil stuff. But that's not the point that he's making. The point that the writer is making is that he spends the first seven chapters talking about it's not just the evil stuff that Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than all the religious stuff, all the religious icons, all the religious people and religious positions that we could put our trust in. He's even better than that. And his argument is this, is that if those other things, if those other things were enough, there would be no need for Jesus at all. If those other things could have made us right with God, then they would have made us right with God by now. If those other things could have dealt with the pain that we experience, the guilt that we experience, the shame of the past, and if it could have given us clarity for the future, it would have done so already. But those things can't do that. And it proves all the more how much better Jesus is. And so what happens is, is that the first seven chapters of Hebrews is really talking about Jesus is better than anything that these Jewish believers would have looked on from Judaism and said, well, this is kind of the pinnacle of Judaism. Then he goes on, we're going to, the next three chapters in uh, chapters eight, nine, and 10, he's going to kind of unpack this really powerful idea because one of the challenges that we have when we, as, as Christians or people that are interested in faith or Jesus or, or however you want to frame it, there's this confusion about how to experience the blessing of God, what it means to obey God, and then what laws do you obey, what's cultural for the time, and what still pertains to us right now. Uh, because everyone you know who doesn't understand why you're a Christian needs to understand what we're going to talk about today. And it's important for you to really absorb it so you're able to relay it when you're having a conversation and people ask why you're a believer. And so, and the cool thing is this, it's going to do several things in your life. One of the things is it's going to really settle you in your faith. It's going to settle you in why you follow Jesus, and it's going to give you an answer for those uh, who don't believe. And so if you're someone who's living in a home with people who don't believe, you're in, you're in a really good place today. If you work with people who think you're crazy because you're a Christian, this is really going to help you. If you have friends who randomly quote the Bible and try to use it as a weapon against you, this is a message that you're really going to want to hear and understand. And by the way, the next one is going to, uh, and the one after that are really going to be helpful for you. And so we're going to talk about these things and drill down and start framing the Bible that's in an important way for us to understand. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, open it there. If you have the outline, grab it. If you have the Calvary app, open it up. If you have eyes, look at the screen and we'll, we'll go from there. So we're going to start in chapter 8 and verse 1. Here's what we read. He says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that we're going to talk about. 
that there is a new way that Jesus is creating. The first is this, is that there is a new way to see God. There's a new way to see God. Now, he says this. This is the main point of the things we're saying. And so this is the main point of the first seven chapters. So if you missed all eight messages that I gave in the first seven chapters of Hebrews, here's where you can catch up in about 10 seconds. And that is this, that Jesus is better than anything we can find in any religious system. Because in any religious system, the work is never done. You're never done doing good works. You're never done making sacrifices. You're never done trying to appease the God that you're seeking to appease. And we're never done sinning and being imperfect. And so you're never done. It's like laundry, right? Laundry is never done. And, and that's just, and, and if, you, if that is a foreign statement to you, it means that you don't do the laundry in your house. Because anyone who does laundry knows that it's never finished. And if, it do, and if you say, no, 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 there was this one moment where it was finished, it was, it was a fleeting sensation. You know that because it was just a matter of minutes before it wasn't done. So Jesus comes along and brings with him something that's brand new, a new agreement, a new covenant, a new way to understand God. And he, he came to set us free because, listen, Christianity is not based on what you can do for God or how you can reach God and earn his love. Christianity is quite the opposite. Christianity is based on what God has done for you. It's God reaching you and doing for you what you and I could never do for ourselves. And so what he does is he gives us this picture that would be shocking for anyone with a Jewish background. And that is he sees a priest who is sitting down. Now, the thing that you have to understand is that in the tabernacle and later in the temple, there were several pieces of furniture. And in fact, we're going to go through them uh, in our message next time. And so uh, we're really going to spend a lot of time looking at the pictures of uh, the, these pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And one, but one of the things you're going to find is that there were no chairs. The reason that there were no chairs is because the work was never done. There were always sacrifices to make. There were always offerings to give. There, there, there was always some kind of sacrifice. The priest never sat down. And that was the point. It was a picture that the work was never done. Now, I want you to think about this with me because Thanksgiving is in about a week and a half. And for some of us, Thanksgiving begins when the food is ready. The, in fact, your work begins when you sit down at the table right before you go through about three helpings of food. And then after you just like really go after, you know, get after it, um, you're going to be so wiped out. You're going to sit slash lay on the couch. And then after about 20 minutes, someone's going to come up to you and they're going to say, hey, are you ready for dessert? And you're going to have a decision to make. And you're going to be like, I don't know. And then some of you are just going to do something that, depending on whose house you're at, you're going to unbuckle your pants, right? Or the, if you're one of the geniuses amongst us, you're going to have worn sweatpants to Thanksgiving. And, and they're like, can you do dessert? And you're going to say, I'm an American, not a quitter. And you're going to go for it. Now, for others of us, Thanksgiving doesn't start. Thanksgiving actually starts about 24 hours before that. And so you're going to start, like Thanksgiving for me starts about, it starts at about, I don't know, 8 p.m. the day before Thanksgiving when I take out the 20-pound brisket that I'm going to make. And then I'm going to start cutting up, cut some of the fat off, 
and then I'm going to soak these cherry chips that I'm going to put into my smoker. Then, uh, once I get that ready, I'm going to tell you a little secret of what I do. You take the rub, and what, what you do is you put some mustard on the brisket. And by the way, it doesn't taste like mustard because all that kind of the smoke takes away the mustard flavor. But um, it binds up the rub. Anyway, this is, these are all pro tips, by the way, that I'm giving you guys. So anyway, then I'm going to get the fire going. Then once I get the fire going, I'm going to try to get it to about a steady 235. But you got to let it kind of go. You got to let it burn for a while because you don't want it to get too hot. Then the brisket's going to cook too fast. The whole goal of brisket is slow and low. It's a tough piece of meat. You got to let it render. You got to let... Anyway, so there's a whole sermon on brisket I'm going to do it some other time. But um, so by the time it's about midnight, I've got the brisket on the smoker. I've let it go for a little while. Then I put these probes in that are in the two different parts, the flat and the point on the brisket. And I'm going to tr- wait for that to get to about 200 degrees. Now I'm going to sleep for a little bit, but I'm going to sleep with that monitor on my nightstand. And uh, every couple hours, I'm going to wake up, kind of give it, an, uh, let's see where I'm at. And, um, but don't worry that when it hits 200, it makes the most ear piercing noise. Uh, these people should start making alarm clocks. They'd make a million bucks. Um, but anyway, and then I'm going to take, once it hits 200, usually it's in the morning. I take it off. I wrap it in butcher block paper. I have my, uh, my cooler there. I put it in the cooler for about four to six hours to let all that fat render back in and really make this uh, extremely tender. Then I'm going to take that cooler to my sister-in-law's house. Once I get to my sister-in-law's house, I'm going to take my cutting board, which I brought from my house because it's fantastic. And uh, then I'm going to cut it. And then once I slice up this brisket we're going to eat and then because i make a giant disaster of a mess i start i i try to do my best to clean up a lot of the kitchen and then the kitchen is clean and then there's this moment when i sit down and i sit down and i'm you know there's usually a couple of teenagers there my daughter and niece and nephew and and then they usually say something like this and if you have teenagers you know this and it's like you've been at this for like 15, 16 hours, right? It's finally done. You've been on your feet the whole time. And then you finally sit down and they say, dad, I'm so tired. And I'm like, you're what? I'm so tired. Like all you did today was wake up. And I've been at this thing since like eight o'clock. Why? And what? But see, there's this moment, right? And this is the idea. The idea is, and the picture that they had never seen is that the priest was sitting down. And this is the point. Why? The priest never sat because the work was never done. Jesus is sitting because the work is done. In fact, Jesus would say it this way when he was on the cross, the last statement that he made, uh, or the second to last statement, he says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, those three English words, it is finished, is actually just one word in the Greek language. The Greek word is tetelestai. And you can figure out how to spell that later. But tetelestai, it's like, well, what, it means it is finished, but it really depended on what you did for a living. It was a very common phrase. So I want to walk through a little bit of, depending on what your vocation was, what tetelestai, it is finished, meant. If you were an artist, the artist, when he says tetelestai, it means that the picture is perfect. You see, an artist would work tirelessly on a painting, and then he or she would get to this moment where they would drop the brush, and they would say to Telestai, the picture is finished. And here's the thing, Jesus recognized that. 
that his life was a picture, that there were over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, and that his life was a picture of what the Messiah would look like. Well, that's if you're an artist. What if you were a servant? If you were a servant working, you had a task that you were given. When the servant said to Telestai, it meant that the work was done. A servant in that culture would come into his master's house and say, Master, to Telestai. And that meant this, that the work that you have given me to do, I have completed. And Jesus, faithfully serving the will of his father, did the thing that his father had asked him to do. He completed the work. If you were a judge, the judge would say to Telestai, to mean this, that justice has been served. You see, the judge would look at the prisoner who has served his time, and the judge would say with the gavel, bang, to Telestai, it is finished, that his debt to society had been paid. And for us, that means that Jesus paid the price of the debt that you and I could never repay. The priest, a priest would say to Telestai to mean this, that the perfect sacrifice is here. You see, priests couldn't offer any sacrifice that they wanted. They, the, the offering had to be perfect. Or, In fact, to use, a, to use biblical language, it meant this, that it had to be without spot or blemish. So when Jesus says it is finished, there is no more need for a sacrifice. That's why the veil was ripped in two from top to bottom when he died. If you were an accountant, you said to Telestai, meaning this, that it was paid in full. When an accountant saw that a bill had been paid, they would stamp it with that one Greek word, tetelestai, paid in full. In fact, archaeologists to this very day are still finding pieces of papyrus. And papyrus is a uh, plant that is hammered out uh, to use um, as a, a writing material. But to this day, they're still finding little receipts, little pieces of paper, bills that then had the word tetelestai on it, that that bill was paid in full when Jesus died. He paid the debt that was owed. It was paid in full. And then the last one is this. The warrior. The warrior would say this when he said to Telestai that the battle is won. To Telestai was the battle cry that was shouted on the battlefield when the commander had overcome his enemy. He would shout to Telestai that it's finished. And that it, once again, it's what Jesus, when Jesus was victorious on the cross, he defeated death, he defeated sin, he defeated the plans of the devil. And he won. That's why, my friends, we have a picture not of a priest who is still running around because the work is never done. We have a priest who is sitting down because it is finished. And because he's sitting and it is finished, here's what verse 3 tells us. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on that mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator or go-between of a better covenant which is established on better promises. And if you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to show you, not just that there's a new way to see God, but there's a new way to approach God. 
Here's the contrast that the writer is making. He's showing that Jesus is a high priest ministering in the true tabernacle. Now, this is a theme that's going to continue in chapters 8, 9, and 10. There's this contrast between what is real and what is a copy. What is real and what was the thing that, was a, that is just a replica of that which is authentic. And uh, that Judaism was preparing us for the real thing that Jesus would usher in. Now, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and were headed to the promised land, they were told to create a tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was basically a portable worship space. It was designed by God, and it is given exact measurements. In fact, if you read, if you started reading the Bible, and you're like, I read Genesis, and that was great, and then you read Exodus, and you're like, wow, this is just like the movie, uh, Ten Commandments, and then you got to this, this one part where it's like, and then God said, I want it to be this length and this width and this height. And, and it, it sounded a lot like, you know, you were reading architectural plans. Um, that's because you were. God said that these all had to be built according to exact measurements for a particular purpose. That taber tabernacle was meant to be a model, a representation of the true tabernacle, which is heaven. That's why if you read the book of Revelation for chapters four and five, you'll see that we get this picture of what heaven looks like. And it is a, like this, it, like, wow, it looks just like the tabernacle that God told Moses that it had to be just like that. And there's a reason because it was supposed to model what heaven is like. Now, the easiest way for us to understand this is, now I recognize that most of us that started, that you're here, you probably started attending Calvary when we were here, when we built this building. But we spent 14 years and eight months in other buildings trying to turn that rented building into something that looked and felt like a church. In fact, I was, I was being interviewed a couple of weeks ago uh, with this group of, a whole bunch of pastors um, on Zoom, because as you know, everything is on Zoom. Um, and so, uh, but I was with this group of pastors, and the guy that was uh, introducing me, he's like, so I heard that you were a portable church for 14 years, and that's going to really encourage the guys. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that's not true. We were a portable church for 14 years, eight months. Don't take the eight months away from me. In fact, the last eight months were the hardest. And, uh, and so, but, and, and by the way, you know, you rent a place, and you know, you're just trying to figure out how to make it feel like a church, right? And I, one of the places that we met was a movie theater. And, uh, and, and some of you have been around, I've told you the story before, but uh, one Sunday we were there, and once again, this is probably going back to like 2005 or something like that, 2006, and uh, this, uh, and the way that that theater worked, is it was kind of like sloped seating, and so I was kind of on the bottom, like right in front of the screen, and then everyone was kind of sloped up, so I could see everyone as they came in on either side. And so what happens is, is that one Sunday I'm teaching, and this lady, and she's dressed very well, like she's dressed like she's dressed for church. She, she walks in, someone gives her a program, and then she sits down in the first seat. And so I'm teaching, and this lady just, and I'm just, you know, once again, I, I don't know if you realize this, but I'm kind of watching everybody as you're watching me. And, uh, you know, I can see who's checking Instagram, and, and by the way, God sees as well. I don't know if you knew that. And uh, <laughs> it's true, though. Uh, and <laughs> But I can see who's like totally into it, and I, and I see, you know, who's catching Z's. And then, the, I, I will tell you this, though, the people that are sleeping are usually the ones that come up to me and are like, Pastor, that was really good. <laughs> that thing you said about resting in the Lord, I received that. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, so 
this lady is sitting there and she's visibly uncomfortable. And as she's, she's sitting there and she's just, I see that she just keeps looking at the program. And she's looking at the program. She's looking at me. She's looking around. She's looking at this. It's about 10 minutes go by. And now this is all I can fixate on. It's like I'm preaching and I'm just looking at her. It's like I'm just, I, anyway. And so, and I'm, you know, I'm reading the text and I'm teaching. And anyway, after about 10 minutes, she stands up and she goes, this isn't Harry Potter. And then she walks out. And I, I'm telling you, I wish, there are things that I, I have many dreams in life. One of the dreams that I have is to be able to have a conversation with that woman. And I just want to know, when did you figure it out? Like, at what, what did I say that tipped her off? You're like, I think this guy's a muggle. You know what I mean? Like, I, seriously, I, I don't know. And, and, you know, anyway, if I had a nickel for every time I was confused for a wizard, I'd tell you, I'd have about 20 cents. Um, but, you know, but I'm telling you, just weird things happen. And the problem is, is that because you're meeting in a movie theater outside, it says, you know, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, and then you walk in, and it's like... This guy doesn't, you know, it kind of looks like Voldemort a little bit, uh, you know, just with a nose. And, uh, well, and, and anyway, weird things happen. We had, um, we had an Easter Sunday one time. This is, I would say, Easter around like 2007 uh, or so where, uh, and this was like, you know, things were going well at the theater and we were doing a few services there and uh, every weekend. And then all the power went out for like two city blocks the power went out. And it turns out what happened was, and it starts getting hot. I mean, like really, really, really hot in the theater. I don't know if you know this, but movie theaters have zero ventilation. And so anyway, so we're like, it's getting really hot. So we go outside trying to figure out what it is. And so on the corner where our theater was, there's this big transformer up on a a, uh, telephone pole. And so it turns out what happened is, and this is what we found out a little bit later, a squirrel you can't even make this stuff up. A squirrel had gotten into this transformer and bit into, oh, I can't remember now. There's a, there's a guy after the service who works for FPL and he explained to me what happened and I totally forgot what he said. Something involving a thing. Anyway, I, I know I'm speaking in very technical terms. Try to keep up. He bit into a thing and then this electrical thing happened. And I know, I know, it's like, I don't, I don't know, what does he mean? It's, it's so technical. Anyway, so long story short, squirrel died. That's really the long story short. And more importantly, the AC died. Uh, and there was no power, no AC. I mean, and it was, I mean, like zero, like Easter service, is like acoustic guitar. I'm yelling uh, in, in, in the whole service so anybody can hear me. But here's the weird part is that... Um, it, it got, I mean, it was so unbearably hot in that theater. But we had more people come to know Jesus in that Easter service than any other service in our history up until that moment. And I, I was telling someone the other day, and I said, they're like, what do you think happened? Like, you think God was moving, you know, something like that? And I'm like, well, maybe. What I really think happened was, I think people were realizing if hell <laughs> is anywhere near as hot as this theater I want no part of it because I believe with Jesus comes AC. And that's, I think, anyway, that's what I think. So it's a fantastic evangelism strategy. And now, 
my point is this, right? Is that you're trying to turn something that isn't a church to feel like a church. Moses is like, God's telling Moses, I want it to look like this. Why? Because it was supposed to give these people a picture of heaven, a picture of eternity. And it says this, that Jesus is the mediator, the go-between of a better covenant, which is built on better promises. Now I want to talk about that for a second. What does that mean? Better covenant, better, isn't a promise a promise? You see, the history of, in the history of Israel, there were two types of promises, two types uh, of promises that God would give to the people. There were unconditional promises. That is God saying, I'm going to do this for you, and it doesn't matter what you do or don't do. I'm going to do that. I put in your notes uh, Genesis chapter 12, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he's like, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a blessing. Anybody that blesses you is going to be blessed. Anybody that curses you is going to be cursed. But that's what I'm going to do. Notice it doesn't say, and Abraham, here are the five things you have to do. No, they don't because it's an unconditional covenant. There's also another type of promise that God gives, and that is what's called the conditional promise. And the conditional covenants, the conditional promises usually begin with the word if. Where God says, if you do this, I'll do that. At Mount Sinai, when God gave the people the covenant, uh, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws, he established a conditional covenant where he says, I will if you will. And the question is, why are these promises better promises? Why is it that, the new, that this new covenant is a better covenant? Because, and here's the point, that a promise is only as good as the person making the promise and the person keeping the promise. Now, let me, now this is a safe place. For some of us, we've known each other a while. For other of us, we've known each other for almost 20 minutes now. And so, um, if you've ever made this, and once again, if you want to raise your hand, have you ever eaten so poorly throughout the day? I have tons of experience in this. Have you ever eaten so poorly during the day that at the end of the night, you just feel horrible? You feel so bad that then you make a vow as you're laying in bed, as you're popping Pepsi or whatever, you know, and you're drinking whatever, you got a, you know, milk of magnesia or something. I hope that's the right, I don't even know if that's the right thing. Anyway, and you're trying to make things better intestinally for yourself. And you're like, I'm never gonna do this again. I'm never gonna eat this bad again. You know, I mean like three Snickers, that's my limit. And so anyway, uh, so you're, you're like, you're never going to do that again. I'm going to, and then you say this, you make the vow. You're like, tomorrow, tomorrow it all changes. Tomorrow I'm going to do, it's going to be, tomorrow I'm going to write down everything that I eat. Tomorrow, no more sugar. Tomorrow, no more carbs. Tomorrow, nothing bad. Tomorrow, if it isn't lettuce-based, I'm not even eating it. You know, so you make all these promises. And then, anybody ever make a promise like that? Okay, now, just stick with me here. You ever wake up the next morning feeling a little bit better? And you're like, eh. I just grab a couple donuts on the way into the office. You know, and you're like, what about the promise? You promised. And you're like, but they're Boston cream. That must be from God. You know, As, it always reminds me of this guy that said, you know, he was eating healthy and then he decided he's not going to, stop at this donut shop. And he's like, you know what? I'm only going to stop at the donut shop if God opens up a space right in the front. And he comes in uh, with a box of donuts. And he's like, and they're like, I thought you weren't getting. He goes, no, I, it was only if God was going to open 
a, a space right in the front. And the seventh time I drove around, the space opened up. So anyway, so <laughs> I love that joke. Uh, now, here's my point. Why is it a better covenant based on better promises? Because the person keeping the promise isn't us. The old covenant is God making a covenant with Israel. I'm going to do all this stuff for you if you'll do this. But here was the problem. We couldn't keep it. But the new covenant is not based on with God and us. It's a, it's a covenant for, with God the Father and God the Son. Saying, I'm going to do all of this if Jesus, you will keep your end of the bargain. And because he kept his end of the bargain, it's a better covenant based on better promises because you and I are not involved in the covenant. We are only the beneficiaries of the, of the covenant. And that's what he gets into next. And here's where we're going to draw it uh, to a close in verse 7. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31 and then he comes back, the writer, and says this, in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, last thing I want to tell you, that is there's a new way to see God, a new way to approach God. Number three, there's a new way to experience God. The old covenant was about God doing for you if you kept the rules. Now, that wasn't God playing a game with the people. And, and by the way, it also doesn't mean that the old covenant was bad. The old covenant was good. It was a huge leap forward. The problem is not the covenant. The problem was our inability to keep it. But it was a huge leap forward culturally for human beings at the time. God was setting up rules for the nation of Israel because all that these people knew was slavery. And so while God had taken them out of Egypt, it was going to take some time for God to take Egypt out of them. And what critics of the Bible tend to do is they have a problem with the commands that are given at Mount Sinai, the Old Testament covenant, because Moses didn't just get 10 commandments. That's like what we see in the movies. But Moses got 613 laws that the children of Israel were to follow. So when you have guys like Richard Dawkins, who's kind of the poster child for the group of, the, you know, what are considered the new atheists, and that is kind of this new atheist movement that, that um, rose up right in right after 9-11. But this is, what he, this is how he describes Judaism. He says, Judaism, originally a tribal cult of a single, fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions and with the smell of charred flesh. Now, if you ever seen an interview with Richard Dawkins, he is the unpleasant one, but we'll leave that where it is. Now, what happens is this. You hear a quote like that, Someone watches a five-minute YouTube video, which, as you know, th watching three YouTube videos is the equivalent of a PhD. I don't know if you knew that, but that is uh, what it is. Then they read some 
verses out of the Old Testament, totally taken out of context, and they're like, how could you possibly be a Christian and believe? Remember, the Old Testament was spoken to a group of people who only have known Egyptian slavery and the power of the Egyptian gods. They saw God do some amazing things where they were freed from slavery, and he's training them and to bring them into a land of their own so that they can govern themselves. They don't know anything about being a nation. All they know is 400 years of slavery, baking bricks, and building things for Pharaoh. And some of these laws, which at first glance might seem odd, are the shoulders in which we stand on and are what have shaped Western civilization. Now, once again, when you look at laws that are like, this doesn't even make any sense, you have to understand the context around them. I don't know if you've ever read these articles, and they float around the internet sometimes, like dumb laws in America that are still on the books. So let me give you a couple. In California, this is a law still on the books. It is illegal to eat a frog that dies during a frog jumping competition. Now, that sounds ridiculous until you find out that about 80 years ago, when that law was enacted, there was a mining town in California that had this annual frog jumping jubilee. Now, you're like, where do I sign up to go to that? Um, now, but during that festival, they ate the frogs that died during the frog jumping jubilee and got sick. And so lawmakers are like, we got to stop this behavior. We want our citizens to live. So here's another one in Alabama, still currently on the books. It is illegal to train bears to wrestle. Because apparently, bears wrestling men was a popular sport in the 19th century, and because of its danger, Alabama enacted this law. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the bears were undefeated, because I can't imagine somebody, you know, anyway, I, I just can't imagine anybody, like, defeating a bear. And, uh, and then here's the last one. This is in uh, Carmel-by-the-Sea in California. It is illegal to wear high heel shoes without a permit. Now, by the way, this is why I steer clear of high heels in general. Just, but this is also, Carmel by the Sea, if you're not aware, is also the town where Clint Eastwood was the mayor. Now, why someone would want to mess with Clint Eastwood, I don't know. I have seen many of his films. I grew up watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Hang 'em High, The Legend of Josie Wales, and The Unforgiven. You know what I've learned in all those movies? Anybody who messes with Clint Eastwood never lives to tell the tale. So, anyway, but here's the reason why that law exists, is that there's so much uneven terrain and unpaved streets in Caramel-by-the-Sea that the city wants you to assume a risk. Uh, assume the risk. You want to wear high heels? Well, get a permit, and you can wear it all you want. And that way, you, before you twist your ankle and then sue the city. Now, here's my point, is that while now that, that might seem kind of silly, some of these laws, you're like, wow, that seems kind of weird. We don't realize that all of those laws were created to solve a problem. So what happens is, what, what people don't do when it comes to the Old Testament laws is that they don't look for the context. They are just, the people that are the critics of the Bible, they're like, come on, look how obsolete that is. What I'm here to tell you is that the Jewish law was thousands of years ahead of its time. So I'll give you an example. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18 is a list of 19 sexual restrictions. Now, I know you're like, yeah, I got it. I have that memorized. Um, and I know what happens. You read uh, 
Genesis, it was great. You read Exodus, it was very exciting. And then you got to Leviticus, and you're like, and that's where I stopped reading the Bible. Uh, because it, got, it was like gristle. Uh, it, was tough, it was a tough read. And it is a bit of a tough read if you don't understand the context. But there's a list of these, of these restrictions. Now, I'm going to give you one, and it's one of the more grosser ones. But anyway, here's, this is Leviticus 18, verses 6 through 8. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She's your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. And now some of you are like, Pastor Bob, why are you grossing me out right before lunch? (laughs) Now, here's what we miss, right? Is that every single one of these things that are being prohibited in Leviticus 18 all 19 of them were all practiced by the Egyptian culture that they were leaving. They were all practiced by the Canaanites whose land they were going into uh, and dispossessing them to inherit the land. That's why at the end of Leviticus, here's what he says. He says this, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations I am going to drive out before you became defiled. By the way, 1,500 years later at the time of Jesus, the Egyptians were still marrying their siblings. The Jewish law was thousands of years ahead of its time, and it would take the Egyptians a few generations to get get away from that behavior. And here's the fascinating thing that uh, people overlook, and that's why I wanted to spend a minute focusing on it. Today, every developed nation and in most developing nations in the world, 17 of those 19 behaviors are from Leviticus 18 are either illegal or deeply frowned upon. That's how far ahead of its time the Jewish law was. And once again, the point is, is that you can't just look at the Sinai covenant and say, it's so antiquated, how, how could God be so old-fashioned and narrow-minded? No, the Sinai covenant that God was establishing with the nation of Israel is a moral and civil code that when you understand it in its context, is completely brilliant. And by the way, every scholar and historian knows this, that you never pull something out of its ancient context and compare it to what's going on in a modern world. And the whole point of the Old Covenant was to prepare us for the something new that God was going to do. And that's why the writer of Hebrews uh, quotes this large section from Jeremiah 31, where he says that, listen, the Old Covenant, it's, it's not enough. Because if there was just an old covenant, there would be no need to even talk about the new. But Jeremiah talks about a new covenant that wouldn't be written on stone like the Mount Sinai covenant. It would be written on the human heart. And that's what we're going to talk about in a greater degree in our next two sessions together. You see, because the Old Testament, the old covenant, when it's doing its job. By the way, the the last verse in your outline is in Galatians chapter 3, where it says this, that the law was our tutor. The law was our schoolmaster, another says. It was our tutor to lead us and direct us, not because the law was bad. It was to show us that we can't keep it. That's why we need a Savior who can keep it on our behalf. That the old covenant, listen, when it's doing its job, it's leading us on an amazing journey to the fulfillment of God's promises in the person of Jesus. And yes, it's gritty, and yes, it's rough, and sometimes it's confusing because we're 3,500 years and half a world away So sometimes it's easy to misunderstand. But when we're reading the Old Testament correctly, it points us to the person who is the fulfillment of all the promises that we read about. And the story ends and leads us where it's supposed to lead us, to the manger in Bethlehem, 
when God didn't sit back and just watch life on earth happen. Instead, he entered the fray and gave us the picture, the image of God that we've been looking for and gave us the thing that we needed the most. Not endless sacrifice and the work never being done. No, a sacrifice so now the priest can sit down because the work is done and we can be forgiven from our past. We can have peace in the present and we can have hope for the future. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that very promise and reality that we can have forgiveness because of what your son has done. We can have peace in the present because of what your spirit is doing. And we can have hope in the future because we know that you're at work. So we pray that we would continue to follow you, know you, walk with you, and experience the reward of those things. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.